reject the bad advice. Typically, there's no shortage of advice given to one in a position of leadership, and often the advice can be self-serving. So a good leader will have to learn when advice has been given to advance the agenda of, say, someone else in a selfish way, or when it is truly wise counsel. In our chapter tonight, 1 Samuel chapter 25, we find David having the wisdom to take good advice, and he's going to benefit greatly from it. This is, of course, a biblical principle. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 9 reads, Oil and perfume make the heart glad, so a man's counsel is sweet to his friend. Both the concepts of friendship and wise counsel are present in this chapter, but the focus is really upon wisdom. David will humbly and wisely accept good counsel. For this to work, the one who's receiving the counsel must be humble and wise enough to receive it, and the counsel itself must be wise. Both must be true. There has to be humility on the part of the person receiving the counsel, but the counsel also must be wise. We can't just counsel people and then get upset if they don't take our counsel. Maybe the counsel is not as good as we thought it was. So both these things have to be true. All counsel is not necessarily wise. In this chapter, it happens to be. The two main characters in 1 Samuel chapter 25 are David and Abigail. In fact, some, some feel that Abigail herself is the major character here. But David, Abigail, and then Abigail's lousy husband, Nabal. Both David and Abigail exhibit wisdom. In the end, both David and Abigail are portrayed in a positive light. Even though, in the beginning part of this narrative, David does come across as somewhat hot-tempered. The chapter begins and it ends for David in sorrow. The chapter begins with a report of the death of Samuel. Samuel is David's friend, and Samuel is David's spiritual mentor. Maybe, I don't know for sure, but maybe this is why David's temper is a little quick to be shown in this chapter. Because he's full of sorrow. There are two things that actually happens. The first is Samuel dies, and he's buried in his hometown of Ramah. It's not recorded that David attended the funeral, and he probably was not able to, given his circumstances at the time. While the principle is true that we should be focused on the one that the messenger is speaking about, Jesus Christ, and not the messenger himself, it's quite normal to respect and to appreciate one who has faithfully served the Lord, like Samuel especially when you've been the beneficiary of that service. It's quite normal. So when we don't focus upon them, we don't worship them, we don't place them upon a pedestal, it'd be quite normal for David to be upset that Samuel had died. It was his friend. It's his spiritual mentor. He meant a lot to him. Surely his death caused David grief. Not grief as one who has no hope. But grief as a man who would miss a good friend. It is normal to grieve. Sometimes Christians get this all backwards. And we think that since the person is in heaven, it's almost sinful that I grieve for a lost loved one. And that's not true. That's nowhere, it's nowhere taught biblically. We grieve, Paul says, but not as those who have no hope. 
grief is normal. In fact, if we try to suppress the grief on the loss of a loved one so much that we're trying to impress our friends, like, it doesn't matter to me. I'm not the least bit bothered by their death. I know that they're in heaven. Actually, that can create some spiritual and mental problems. Grief is normal. So it's normal for David to have grief upon the death of Samuel. But it would not be normal for him to have grief as one who has no hope. He knew where Samuel was. He knew that salvation was by grace through faith alone, in this case, in Yahweh alone, in the Lord alone. Salvation is by grace through faith, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Sometimes people think it's a different thing. In the Old Testament, they had to keep the law. And in the New Testament, they had to exercise faith. No, 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 no. Salvation is by grace through faith, no matter what period of time you find yourself living in. Now, in the Old Testament, the object of that faith was the Lord of Israel, Yahweh. But nevertheless, David knew that since Samuel had exercised that faith, he was in heaven and he would see him again. But it certainly grieved him to know that Samuel was gone, that he wouldn't talk to him anymore, at least not here on this earth. That's how the chapter begins. The chapter ends with the news that Saul had given David's wife, who was also Saul's daughter, to another man. It appears as though by doing this, Saul is saying that David is as good as dead as far as he's concerned. The way that this is phrased, had given, indicates that David most likely knew about the fact that Michal had been given to another man before he took Abigail as his wife. In other words, before the chapter even begins, before this episode happened, David probably already knew that Saul had given away his wife to another man. If you've read ahead, you'll know that later, after Saul's death, David is going to negotiate with Abner to get Michal back, much to the chagrin of Michal's new husband, much to the grief of the new husband. It's actually a very, very sad scene. This man, Palti, goes along after the procession, and he's just weeping along the way as he goes. As you might expect, the reunion is not what David might have wanted it to be. He rips her out away from somebody that apparently she, she did care for. And the remarriage is not at, at all a positive thing. And we'll see that a little bit later in, in our lessons on the life of David. So in this chapter, we need to keep this in mind, this framework in mind, that David has lost a very, very close friend and spiritual mentor. And he's also lost his wife. That's the mental framework that he is in at the moment. That's why he might be a bit testy. In this chapter. Now, I'm not making excuses for him. I'm giving you a reason. This is why he might be a bit short tempered in this chapter. There's one thing that I want to comment on here now briefly, and then we'll expand it in a future lesson. A biblical, God honoring marriage is between one man and one woman. That's the way God originally designed it. The fact that some biblical characters like Jacob and like David and like Solomon appear to get away with having more than one wife doesn't alter the principle of the one man, one woman. Polygamy was never the biblical norm. It was never God's desired will. And as we progress through these narratives on David, we're going to see that the biggest problems that David had in life were induced by the fact that he'd made terrible choices and had taken more than one wife. Most of the problems that he had came from this area of weakness in his life. Why God tolerated David having more than one wife, I can't say for sure. 
He's going to have to ask him when we get there. The Bible never specifically says that, but God did tolerate it. But I can say that biblically, and that's what I'm concerned with, I'm a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm interested in one thing. What does the Bible say? And it's my job to tell that to you. And then you do with it what you like. The Holy Spirit will convict you, I hope, to accept it and to act upon it. But what I can say is that biblically, marriage is between one man and one woman. Constitutionally, someday it may be different. Culturally, it may be different. But biblically, it's clear. One man, one woman. We'll talk about this more as the narrative progresses and, and we see how much trouble David gets in because of all these different wives and because of all the different children from the different wives. It'll cause him great grief. But now for chapter 25. There's a striking contrast between good and evil also in this chapter. David in this chapter is portrayed as good and noble. So even though he's hot-tempered, he's still portrayed as good and noble. Nabal is portrayed as mean and evil. Abigail, she's beautiful, she's intelligent, she's wise, and she's good. And again, Nabal, her husband, whose name means literally fool, is a jerk. So you see, you have a comparison and contrast between David and Nabal. David's good and noble, Nabal is mean and evil. You also have a contrast between Abigail and her husband, Nabal, at least it's her husband when the chapter starts. David will be her husband when the chapter's over. But you see a comparison and contrast there. She is beautiful. She's intelligent. She's wise and she's good. And Nabal probably couldn't get any worse than he is. So I'm just going to affectionately call him the jerk of this chapter. His name means fool, which probably tells us that this is a nickname. I don't know of any parents that would name their child, their little new wonderful little baby fool, Nabal. So this must have been a nickname, probably a name that people called him behind his back. This man, Nabal, though, even though he's somewhat of a jerk, is a very, very wealthy jerk. <laughs> he has 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Now, in the culture of that time, that makes him the equivalent of a, of a multimillionaire in today's culture. He's extremely wealthy. At the same time, David and his men are anything but wealthy as this chapter opens. Nabal is married to Abigail, a woman who's described by the text as beautiful and intelligent. And frankly, as I was going through this, I'm wondering that I'm trying to answer the age-old question in my mind, what is a beautiful and intelligent woman doing married to a fellow like this? Now, the first thing you might say, well, she's got a lot of money. That would not count for her intelligence. If she's intelligent, she's not going to marry a fellow just for his money. But then we have to remember, if we go back into the culture in which Abigail found herself, she probably didn't set this marriage up in the first place. This marriage was set up by her father. So that's why she's married to a fellow that's such a lousy human being, even though she is the polar opposite. She is a virtuous woman who's going to give David very, very wise advice. So her daddy picked a rich man for her to marry without any thought to his character, and actually didn't do his daughter a favor at all. Money only takes us so far, doesn't it? The old, the old phrase, money can't buy you happiness, that's really true. Some people say, well, give me a shot, give me a couple days, and some people have a couple days worth to try to find out. That's not the point. Verse 3, in chapter 25, describes Nabal as a man who was harsh and evil in his dealings. As the chapter unfolds, we're going to find out that David and his men had provided protection for Nabal and his flock 
Presumably, the protection is from Philistine raiders. We've seen that in the previous chapter. There's an implied agreement that in return for that protection, that Nabal would return the favor if a day ever came when David needed a favor. Well, that day came. And David and his men needed some food. Let's pick up the narrative at this point in chapter 25, verse 8. So David sent ten young men and said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life, peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. And now I have heard that you have Shearer. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything in all the days that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at your hands to your servants and to your son David. There's nothing unreasonable in David's request at all. David and his men had done them a favor, a great favor. They're just asking for a favor in return. This is not some sort of mafia godfather kind of thing. And that's not what's going on here. This is all very upfront and honest. David is no thug. He's being completely reasonable here. Now, Nabal's response was not only evil, but it was stupid under the circumstances. Look at verse 9. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all the words that David had given them. Then they waited. In verse 10, but Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from their master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men whose origins I do not know? Nabal went out of his way to personally insult David. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There's everybody in that room who knew who David was. Abigail already knows that he's supposed to be king. He knows who David is. What he's doing is he's taking sides with Saul in the conflict. He's insulting David and taking sides with Saul. Presumably, he thinks that if David gets angry, Saul's going to ride to his rescue and help him out. It's not going to work out that way. I don't know what was going through Nabal's mind, but he makes a huge mistake in insulting David and not offering a favor in return for the favor that David had given him. Look at verses 12 and 13. So David's young men retraced their way and went back, and they came and told him according to all these words. And David said to his men, I kind of like this, each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed in the battle with him. Now here's a question I thought was interesting here. It means more than when these men just retraced their steps. It means more than they just turned around and went home. It means that they turned abruptly, like a military man doing an about-face. It's a very strong gesture. The messengers are not happy about this at all, and they know David's not going to be happy when, he, when they get back. David's not happy at all, in fact, and he's about to bring down the wrath of God on Nabal. Stop for a moment. Was Nabal wrong? Absolutely. He was. There was an implied agreement between David and Nabal. David's going to provide protection from the Philistine raiders. 
have it. There's other times when David needs help from the bomb, and that's what he gets. There's an implied agreement. And so it says all along, absolutely, he's wrong. For her requesting, is is David wrong? Who's partial? And here's the line that we have to draw, and it's a very fine line, and I want you to listen carefully, because David was right in being offended at the injustice. David is going to be king. He should be offended at injustice when he sees it in the kingdom. That's part of David's response is actually correct. But he's wrong, and we'll find out in a few minutes, that David then campaigned to kill every male that's associated in Nabal. Not just Nabal, but he's going to kill everybody. Everybody in the family except for the one that has the children. And that shows me that David's temper had gotten the best of him. He started off by doing something right. It's right to be offended at an injustice when you see it. And it's right to do something about it if you are in a position to do so and you have the authority to do so. And in this case, David had the authority to do so as one who was the anointed king of Israel in the future. We've already seen how different factions have taken him out. So he was right to be upset at the injustice. It's wrong for David to take the response too far. You see the difference. And it's his anger that he wasn't able to control that's going to motivate him to take this way too far. Nabal deserves what he's going to get. We see that because ultimately God is going to be the one giving it to him. The other men didn't deserve it. They were just hired hands. But this is a time when anger can take something that's right and can quickly turn it into something that's wrong. And all of a sudden we're scratching our heads, say, what just happened? When I started this conversation, I was in the right. And all of a sudden now I look up, and I've done something wrong. I've been in that position. Maybe you have too. I've been in that position more than one or two or three times in my life. Well, I started off being a bump. By golly, that's an injustice, and I'm going to do something about that. But then my anger would get the best of me, and by the time I'm finished with the process, I find myself just as guilty as the people that I was angry with. Maybe you haven't ever been in that situation. I bet you actually have. Anger is not something that tends to temper our response. It tends to inflame it. And that's why we've got to be careful with it. And that's what the problem was here. If David is going to be a good king in the future, and he will be, David is going to be the king against which all other kings in Israel are judged up until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the king of kings and lord of lords in the future. Up until that time, David is the king against which all other kings are judged. So he is a good king. He is a just king. He's right to have this attitude where he can't stand injustice. He's right. He better be upset with injustice if he's going to be a good king. But he's also got to be wrong in his response. Now David is all worked up. He's headed toward Nabal and his men with 400 of his, his fellows, and David's fellows are much might, more mighty men than Nabal's men were. Nabal's men were cowboys. They were sheep herders. They weren't fighters. David's taking 400 crack troops down there, and again, he's going to unleash the wrath of God on Nabal and his men. Enter Abigail. Verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we were about Nabal, while we were in the field. They were to us a wall, both by night and by day. 
all the time they were with them, turning out the people. Now therefore, know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master, against all his household, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. In other words, we can't talk any sense into him. And the guy's going to get us all killed. You see this servant position. You've got to do something. We're all going to die because of your husband who won't listen to this fellow because he's a worthless man. And what the guy's saying is, David's not asking for anything that's unreasonable here. David did do his part. He did provide his part of the bargain. He protected us. We didn't miss a single sheep. Now, all David wants is some food. This worthless man is cussing him in. Won't even try. Remember that this woman is not just a pretty face. She's also strong. So she takes action immediately to calm the situation. She knows that there's no time to waste. And Abigail hurries and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I am coming after you. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal. So that exercised her command. She tells him that Nabal will surely stop him. He'll surely stop him from David. He'll surely kill all those men. And while it may have looked like justice on David's part on the surface, I firmly believe that David would have been thoroughly disciplined by God for allowing his kindness to take hold of him at that time. Abigail exercises wisdom in calming down the situation. What would she have done? David meets Abigail. Look at verse 28. It came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain, that behold, David and his men were coming down toward her, so she met them. Now David said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing is missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned the evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave as much as one male of any in my army. But there's a time for that. There's a time for a wife or a friend to take the bullet for you. You know when close friends will do that. You know, friends, when you're really, really worked up like that, people that are just casual acquaintances, they want, they want nothing to do with you. They'll stay away from the way. But it's your friend that's going to come up and say, hey, hey, hold on now. Hold on. Don't punch me. Because you got to calm down. Think about what you're doing. Is this really what you want to do? You don't really want to pull that trigger. That's not who you are. It's going to end poorly if you do that. That's why Abigail entreated David. In verses 26 through 31, we see Abigail exercising extreme wisdom. Now, therefore, my Lord, she's speaking to David, as the Lord lives, as Yahweh lives, this tells me in her spirit that I know what it means to do. She's swearing by Yahweh, which is legitimate in those days. As your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who speak evil against my Lord to be as Nabal. 
We're going to let this gift, which the maidservant is brought to our Lord, be given to the young men who have accompanied my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. Enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you all your days. But should anyone rise up to deceive you and teach you lies, then the life of my Lord shall be found in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But the lies of your enemies he will fling out as from the hollow of his hand. And it shall come about when the Lord shall do for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you. He shall appoint you rulers over Israel that this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both having shed blood without cause, and by my Lord having avenged himself. For the Lord shall deal well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. This absolutely kills me. In these verses, first, Abigail admits that what Nabal did was wrong. Yes, he's a jerk. Second, she provides David what he wanted in the first place. Third, she recognizes David's position as the anointed future king of Israel. In other words, she's not taking Saul's side. She recognizes the Lord's sovereignty in bringing David along. And finally, after all that, then does she attempt to talk some sense into it. You don't really want to shed innocent blood, do you? This is why it's wrong. First, she acknowledges the wrong. She even takes some of it upon herself. Forgive your maidservant. She acknowledges that her husband is an evil man. She provides David with what he needed in the first place. She recognizes him as future king of Israel, and then she talks some sense into him. And I like how she does it. It's an attractive quote. Again, in verses 30 and 31, And it shall come about, and the Lord shall do to my Lord, all the good he has spoken concerning you, and shall appoint you rule over Israel, that this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both having shed blood without cause. She's not in grievance with him yet, but he's not going to kill everybody. She's using an attractive code. She's assuming he's going to do the right thing. It's wise counseling, and it works. And it works because it's not a gimmick. It is sincerely offered Pull me off of that fellow. So David calmed down and met this question out front before it happened. A legitimate rejection. David sees the rejection and he's upset about it. That's his gift. Somewhere between fear and arrogance, David allows his being upset to escalate to a point where he's no longer free. And when he's no longer free, he's out of fellowship with God. And instead of taking this vengeance, But clearly he doesn't have a right to take vengeance at all. 
somewhere between here and there, he stopped thinking. And this brilliant woman, who gives us such wise counsel, counsels him in such a way to calm him down so he can start thinking again. And as soon as he starts thinking again, he has hopeful counsel and wisdom. She didn't start by telling him not to do it. She started by acknowledging that you're right to be upset, David. I get it that you're upset. She also begins by saying, here's what you wanted. She placates him first. And this is wisdom. And I bring it out because we all are in situations sometimes, and I'm one of those guys that calm down to somebody that's not thinking anymore. If they have a legitimate complaint, acknowledge it. But hey, listen, I know you like to be, have a right to be upset with it, but is that what you really want to do? Yes, you have a right to be upset, but is divorce counseling, is that really where you want to go with it? Or, yeah, I know you're upset with it, but is violent doing this thing that you need to do? If David doesn't calm down, his life's going to be ruined. Not that she didn't take it into the great report, because there wasn't that kind of system set up in the last chapter, but because of the heavenly court. Abigail knew that she hinted with Jonah. She gives him wise counsel, and David finally calms down long enough to see that what she's saying makes sense. Why? The Lord knows that what Nabal did to him has rewarded himself very well. Isn't it interesting how the Lord will take care of business of his own? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now that's one of the hardest things for us to accept. I used to think it was it's the hardest thing for males to accept until I talked to Sam and realized it's a hard thing for anybody to accept. Male or female, it's difficult to let the Lord handle it. Vengeance is not sweet. Vengeance is bitter. It's bitter for the one that's being has the vengeance exercised upon them, but it's even more damaging and more bitter to the one that is exercising the vengeance upon them. It may ruin our lives. Then Abigail came to Nabal. Now David David says, okay, he's accepted by this man. Then Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like a feast of a king. Nabal had no idea how ancient times were. And when Jezebel and Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk, so she did not tell him anything at all until morning. It came about in the morning that the wine had gone out of Nabal when he showed up, that his wife told him these things. Listen, she tells him these things over our chapter. And his heart died within him, so he became as a stone. Now, he doesn't die right away. About ten days later, it happened that the Lord struck Nabal and died. There may be times when God uses human agents to be out working his plans or to see things his way during our lives. But there are also times when he just takes care of the corruption. And this is one of those times. God took care of Nabal. David didn't have to do it. He makes a surgical strike and takes out only the one who's guilty. I think Genesis goes to all of us that Nabal was guilty and he did deserve to be punished. But it also demonstrates that if David had gotten his way, he would have gotten the same. So it's not Nabal's men who are at fault. 
Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach and my anger no more, and has kept back his servant from evil. Now that he's calmed down, he's perfectly civil. The Lord has also returned evil doings on Nabal and his own head. Then David sent a proposal to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail and saw her, they spoke to her, saying, David has sent us to you to take you as his wife. That's terminology. sends her back Sheba, and he takes her. I'll go over the fact that there's a little different situation there, but the terminology very well could imply that David took her somewhat against her will. But in the context here in 1 Samuel chapter 25, the context doesn't sound like that's what happened. It does seem to, in spite of that terminology, it does seem that Abigail goes along very willingly. But she does stress from here on out different when you say it. 
this chapter, this is one of my favorite chapters in Galatians, and we find a wise woman giving wise counsel as a wise man listens. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 5 says, A wise man will hear and is speedily learned, but a man of understanding will acquire 